November 9 of 2005 marked the release of a much-anticipated and much-hyped feature film. Do you remember what it was? Did you go see it? It was called Get Rich or Die Trying, starring a very famous rapper by the name of 50 Cent, or Fitty, if you're into that sort of thing. His name is Curtis Jackson. And from the feature film uh, came the title track called Hustler's Ambition. You know it? Is it one of your favorites? Well, let me spit some rhymes for you. All right? Where's H? Give me a beat. No one? Okay. No, you don't really want to hear me rap, but here is the chorus line. I want the finer things in life, so I hustle. You get in my way while I'm trying to get mine, and I'll buck you. I don't care who you run with or where you're from. Blankety blank, 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 blank. (laughs) Get rich or die trying. A sort of uh, autobiographical movie about a very famous rapper named 50 Cent. Is that your soundtrack in life? Get rich or die trying? Is it? Are you a Fitty fan? Sounds funny coming from me, doesn't it? I don't have much street cred. That's all right. Maybe you are not a a hustler. Maybe you wouldn't define yourself. But are you pursuing wealth in your life? We are continuing our conversation about finances on our campus. And if you weren't here last week and you just walked into this one, I'm sorry. Somebody should have warned you. Because I see some of our friends came last week and didn't come back today. (laughs) But we're going to talk about money today. So go ahead, loosen up. Let's get real. Let's be honest. Are you trying to get rich or die trying? For many of us, as we discussed last week, finances and the topic of finances is our number one concern. Research found, I told you last week, that for most Americans, the number one thing we worry about is money. Finances. Do we have enough? Where can we get more? I got to make mine. So I got some good news for you. I I researched the internet, scoured for advice so that you can get rich. And I came across this article written by Jeff Hayden that says, the only way to get really, really rich. That's actually the title. The only way to get really, comma, really rich. Do you want to know what it is? No one's interested. Okay, fine. I'll pass it on. The only way to get really, really rich, he says... Is to own your own business. To own your own business. Now some of you guys in the crowd are like, yup. I see you. You're the person in that story from last week. Jesus' story about the talents. You're the person with five. You can make five easily. Making money, it's your thing. That's what you do. You make moves. You make moves. And you're like, that's right. I own my own business. According to his research, Jeff Hayden researched the most uh, financially wealthy people on the planet. And he says it takes, in 2009, a few years ago, it takes $77 million in earnings per year to crack the top 400. Of the top 400 wealthiest people, the average income was $202 million per year. That's a year. How you doing so far? But the fantastic thing about his research was that he found out how they make their yearly salary. Are you ready for this? Wages and salaries of that average $200 million. Wages and salaries, only 8.6% come from their wages and salaries. They draw a meager wage and salary. 
interest because they invest, but only 6% of their annual salary made from interest. Dividends, 13%. The bulk comes from capital gains, over 45% capital gains. Partnerships and corporations, 20%. That means, that means they rich get richer because they own it all anyway. So he suggests... You want to get really, really rich? You're never going to do it as an employee of somebody else. Somebody say amen to that. You're like, I'm tired of working for this man. I need to be my own boss, right? The author suggests, I know you have a great idea somewhere. Someday you've come up with something. You have a dream. You have a passion for something. He says, get out there and do it. Someday you might come into a large windfall that make you really really rich. Be an entrepreneur. And for some of you, you're like, see, honey, I told you. The pastor even said so. I should be my own boss. But others know that it's not as easy as it makes it sound, right? Some of us who own our own business know that you're never off the clock and there is no my time versus company time. It's not as easy as they make it sound, and yet we work and we work and we work, and somehow, for many of us, we just don't seem to get ahead. But I'm trying to help you, friends. I'm trying to help you. I really am. I research more on the internet. How can we help? How can we better position ourselves? Because the number one concern on people's minds, American minds, is financial stability. We all want to be financially set. We may not say it, but it's like a desire. We want to be financially self-sufficient. So I came up on this article. Listen to this. This is by Sam McRoberts, uh, CEO of Voodoo Marketing. He says, do you want your kids to be a billionaire, parents? Then teach them these seven things. You want your kids to be billionaires? Because the hope is if they make a billion, maybe they'll throw some my way when I get old, right? Just remember what we said uh, last week. Uh, parents are now hoping grandparents will kick in for their kids' education. So maybe wishful thinking. But if you want your kids to be billionaires, he says, teach them these things. This few things. I'm going to just read a few because you all want your kids to be billionaires. Okay, there's one honest person in the room. That's all right. Financial liter- literacy says you should teach them about stuff, even things you don't know like uh, uh, withholding companies, asset protection strategies, interest in public markets. A love of learning, systems thinking, risk thinking. But the number one thing he says that employer is greater than employee. Employer is greater than employee. Woo. Now, he makes it sound like it's going to work. But if I teach my kids that, you know what that means, right? They'll never want to get a job. How are you living your life? What motivates you financially? What are the strategies that you're using? Have you had a recent money conversation in the home, in your family? Most of us don't want to talk about money, even though we spend it every day. We go to work every day trying to generate more. But it seems to be a very difficult topic to talk about at home. And certainly a very difficult topic to talk about here at church. But we need to. We must. What are your attitudes towards money, and where did you get them? If you look close enough, you'll realize that most of your attitudes towards money usually come from your family of origin. Perhaps in the family that you grew up, money was a way of communicating affection. 
If you're belonging to that kind of a family, your parents missed out on your important events, but they brought you a gift afterwards to try to make you feel better. If you were part of that family, uh, instead of apologizing, you would just bring somebody something. You never have to say, I'm sorry, if you bring a gift. Maybe you grew up in a family, uh, probably a traditional Adventist family, where you were told you didn't have any money, and your parents made you believe that you were poor, when in fact, they had a very healthy savings account. I don't know if that applies to you, but you would go to school, and your friends would say, oh, you guys are well-to-do. No, no, not us. We're Adventists. We are poor. In spirit and in all other ways. And your parents try to make you believe that humbleness or the appearance of humbleness was godliness. And so you dressed poor to give the appearance. And maybe you got that kind of mentality and your parents told you don't go out and spend money on foolish things. But they would rack up big bills on things that were important to them. Or maybe you grew up in a family where image was everything. Where image was everything. We're a family where you couldn't pay the rent, but you would drive nice, fancy cars. Because nobody can see where you live, but they see you driving out and about. They'd be willing to take out great loans to sport nice cars with 22-inch rims. I don't even know what that is. I don't know if that's real. Sorry. The appearance is everything when it comes to, for some families. For most of us, our attitudes towards finances, we received from the family that raised us. But as we become adults, we must take responsibility for our own thoughts. We must take ownership of our own ideas. And that's the conversation that we're trying to engage with today. So what do you feel about money? How are you dealing with financial issues in your life and in your world? And to that, we have proposed last week, but I want to bring it up again, that the number one thing we as a community must be concerned with when it comes to finances is that it all belongs to God. Not a single amen in the house. Because it's the hardest thing to figure out, but it's the first thing we've got to realize. It all belongs to God. We discussed this last week, but I I realize some of you walked into this one today, you weren't here, so I'm going to just bring you up to speed. The Bible tells us in the very beginning of the book of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it. And when he placed us, man and woman, in the middle, he said, I'm giving you these things. I will give you these things for food, and I will give you these things to take care and have dominion. Work it, take care of it, produce it, fill it. But it all came from God. That theme continues to reoccur time and time again. And we read later in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 19, when God was forming the people of Israel, his special people on the earth, he said to them, remember, remember, That it all belongs to me. The earth is mine. But I want a special relationship with you. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when he had led the people of Israel through that serious time of trust development in the desert, and as they were about to take possession of Canaan, finally after 40 years, and as they were about to finally be blessed financially, God comes to them, speaks, and he says, now, when you get there and you settle down, remember we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, when you get there and you settle down and you build fine houses... The kind of housing that you can find in a place called San Diego. The kind of houses that have views out of the back. And nice manicured lawns. And gates. When you build fine homes and settle down, God says, you will have a temptation 
to look at your things and say the strength of my hands have generated this wealth for me. But remember that it all comes from God. Deuteronomy says, even the strength in your hands comes from God. Your ability to make wealth comes from God. So it all belongs to him. Not just the material things, not just the cattle on a thousand hills, but you, yourself, your energy, it comes from God. We belong to God. And that's especially true for those of us who claim to be followers of God. That was the invitation, remember? In Exodus, right before Mount Sinai, God says, the whole earth is mine, but you, but for you, I have a special invitation. I want you to be my special people, my prized possession, God says. I own it all, but I want you to be my prized possession. We call that, by his words, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And we have been discussing here these last several weeks what that means for us. It means that we position ourselves under a different banner and that we live our life differently than what the rest of the world thinks. And that includes our money and our stuff. Number one principle, if we're going to figure this out, is that it all belongs to God. All wealth comes from God, for all things belong to him, and God is the source of all good things. Author uh, John Jackson, who's a doctor and a theologian, uh, writes these seven biblical principles on finances. I want to share some of them with you. The first one, as I just mentioned, is that God is the source of all wealth. Next, he suggests this. He says, what you treasure affects your eternal destiny. What you treasure affects your eternal destiny. He says, when we're thinking about finances, we got to understand that whatever it is that our hearts fully value, that affects our eternal destiny. It's a biblical principle. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth. Am I? You guys never heard that one? Yes? Okay. Roth and, I mean, rust and moth destroy, but instead store up treasures in heaven for where your There your heart will be also. Jesus says, whatever you value, that's where your heart belongs. If we're going to understand God's design for us financially, we've got to figure out where our heart is. Where is our heart placed? What does our heart value? What you treasure affects your eternal destiny. Number three, he suggests giving back to God is an act of worship and obedience. See, when God settled the people in, in, in Exodus and he, after he gave them those principles, if you read the next, if you read the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, God creates a very robust system of financial uh, interdependence. He creates a way for the people of Israel to financially support each other. Some had these gifts, some had those talents, and they would exchange it all under the guidance of God. And in particular, God set aside the Levites, a group of the Israelites, an entire tribe, one of the 12, and he said to them, you will serve me uniquely. You will only serve me and I will be your inheritance. And then he turns to the rest of the 11 and he says, all of you, out of your gains, out of your first fruits, you are going to give a portion. We call it a Tithe, and that tithe, God says, I will entrust or give to the Levites. So he creates what we call a system of interdependence where the people were 
designed by God to bless each other forward, if you will. So that they wouldn't be tempted into thinking that it was all theirs. But that it all came from God and this is what he had designed. Giving back to God, Dr. John Jackson says, is an act of worship and of obedience. It reflects whether or not we trust him as the ultimate giver. And then he suggests this. Wealth does not endure, but righteousness does. Wealth does not endure, but righteousness does. So I have a kind of a funny question. Did any one of you, like my family, purchase a home in the year 2006 or 2007? Don't say yes to that. Oh, did you, sweetie? Was it a big home? I'll just be frank with you. It was about that time, y'all remember, in the 2004, 2005, we had a, a, a brand new child and things were going. The economy was on the rise. They were handing out money. The bank was giving out money to whoever, left and right. And it seemed like every time you checked, home values just kept going up and up and up, right? Some of y'all were living in million-dollar homes at the time because it was valued so highly. And the idea and the predominant sentiment was that it was never going to come back down. And so you had to get in wherever you could. I'm not making this up. My family and I, we were living in Loma Linda at the time, which is, by the way, a difficult market to, to, to break into because it's so tiny and so small. And, and we needed a place to live. We were a growing family. We had dogs and everything. And we prayed and we wrestled. And a new development was opening up in town. And we said, this is our chance. And we, we, we went there. And, and, and uh, my wife was in residency at the time, just so you know, and resident is another word for slave without the stigma. It's true. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and while we were there, so get this, a pastor and a slave applied for a home loan in a brand new development in Loma Linda, and the bank said yes. And we did. We moved into a brand new home, and we're like, wow, what, this is amazing. And then 2008 came along, and 2009, and we found out the hard lessons that wealth simply does not endure. It can be gone like that. Somebody told me here in our community, in Bonita, we weren't here quite yet, but they told me that in those years, many people of our church community lost their homes right here in San Diego. While the bubble bursts splendidly in some places, here it just deflated. And many people lost their homes and came firsthand with this idea, this knowledge that wealth simply can't be counted on to be there. It can disappear. We were still living in the house, but the house was worthless. Strange how it is, isn't it? One day you wake up and you're like, this is awesome. And the next day there are for sale signs everywhere and lawns nobody is mowing and people are gone and the street is vacant. And you think it's still the same house from last year, but now it's worthless. That's how wealth is. It's deceptive and it does not endure. Check out this verse here, please. Ecclesiastes, a hard book to find, but you can do it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. verse 10, and it says this, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. 
Ecclesiastes says, whoever loves money can never have enough. Isn't that just the truth, friends? Isn't that just the truth? I'm just being honest, and forgive me for being so honest, but you, every time you upgrade, by the way, who doesn't love an upgrade, right? Every time you upgrade, whether it's your phone, your car, your house, or your wardrobe, every time you upgrade, you feel good. Come on, don't be shy about it. It feels good. Some of you are toting around that nice giant cell phone that looks like this. In fact, you probably need two hands for it. It's funny how it goes around. Back in the, in the, in the 90s, I had a nice big phone. They used to make fun of me, but now everyone wants one. And when you get it, when you upgrade where the, where the cell phone dealer says, yeah, you're entitled to a new upgrade, when you go to the car lot and he says, for the same price you're paying on that one, you can get this one, it feels good. But that feeling just doesn't last, does it? For every new year, a new iPhone comes out, which makes yours look not so good. I mean, it literally looks the same, but it's better. Right? When you move into that new house, I know when we moved into ours, it was like, oh, this is so awesome, all these rooms. But now we say, this whole thing, eh. It's human nature when we're focused on the things to always grow dissatisfied the longer we own them. It's human nature. The Bible says those of us who fixate on the stuff will never have enough stuff. We will always want more. And the pursuit of that is meaningless. Meaningless. So what are we supposed to do with our money? How are we supposed to uh, approach financial wealth? Should we get rich at all costs or die trying? To prove to you that, in fact, it doesn't really work, I got to read this to you. On July of 13 of this year, 2015, Mr. Jackson, also known as Fiddy, of the famous Get Rich or Die Trying movie, filed for bankruptcy this year. So despite the title of his movie and despite what he tried to portray, he filed for bankruptcy this year. But I want you to take in some of these numbers. They're fantastic. His assets, the things that he owns are counted in his favor, $24.8 million. His debt, $32.5 million. So he filed for bankruptcy protection. Isn't that just insulting to the rest of us? Right? Some of us got more debt than what we can afford to pay. But he filed for bankruptcy protection. But check this out. I'm just telling you, it's never enough. His monthly expenses, we have this because he filed for bankruptcy, making all these public these record public. His monthly expenses, $108,000 a month. $3,000 a month for meal and entertainment. $3,000 on wardrobe, because he's got to look nice. $2,000 on travel. $17,000 on his mortgage. And $9,000 on security and protection. Even his bodyguards are doing well. His crib, literally that's what it says. His crib. <laughs> His crib, $8.25 million in Connecticut. 21-bedroom home, has a racquetball court. I didn't know 50 played racquetball. A whole movie theater and an eight-car garage. 
but has an unpaid loan of about a million dollars left. His rides, that's what it says, his rides. $500,000. He has a 1966 Chevy Coupe, a 2015 Chevy Suburban, a 2010 Rolls Royce, a 2005 Suburban. He needs two. One's not enough. A Dodge Sprinter. Oh, a 2003 Suburban. How many Suburbans do you need? And a Bentley. I can't even pronounce. Mulsane? I don't even know what that is. His bling, literally that's what it says in the news report. His bling, to be determined. He has a lot of bling. We don't even know how much it's worth. And his child support, $855,000 in child support for one child, a toddler named Sire. So. Does wealth last? Can it be counted on? Will it be something that you can rely on? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And yet many of us are driven by this particular desire to be financially set. When we speak to young people, when we talk to them, it's an interesting conversation nowadays. Many years ago, when you talk to a high schooler, you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They say, I want to be a dentist. I want to be a pediatrician. Uh, kids these days have no idea what they want to be. That's the truth, right? Go ahead and ask them. What are you going to do? I don't know. <laughs> so they'll answer more pragmatically. I just want to be financially set. They don't say wealthy. They just say, I just want to be financially set. Because we have created this notion that there is a way for you to be financially safe, financially independent, financially protected. And with some good desires in our heart, we try to instill in our kids a good work ethic. We want them, by the way, Adventists are big on education. Why? So that our kids are well learned. No, so that they can get a good job, Right? So that you can get a good job and not have to live in my house when you're old. That's basically the deal. Even though they're coming back home by the dozens. The new threat, they say, the new threat to your retirement is your grown kids coming back to live in your house in their 50s. After failed marriages and failed business ventures. So you thought you are going to be out there with me riding your RV... But it'll be your grown kids sucking your savings account back home. Because we have proposed this idea that you can be financially secure, financially set, financially safe. But it isn't true. Wealth is fleeting. The pursuit of it can lead you down all kinds of hurtful places. God did not design us for that. It is not part of his strategy for us to pursue finances as a means, as an end in and of itself, of means to an end in and of itself. God designed us differently. So look at the counsels on wealth and wealth management found in the book of 1 Timothy. Turn your Bibles, please. I know you've just been listening to me, but now look in your own Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is giving counsel to his young charge uh, who is instructing and growing a new community. And he gives them some solid financial principles that are important for us to understand. So we're going to be there quickly. Don't worry, we're getting close. 1 Timothy chapter 6, <clears throat> beginning with verse 7. 
Paul says, understand this, for you brought nothing into this world so you can take nothing out of this world. You brought nothing into this world so you can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Amen? Yeah, you liars. You are not content with food and clothing. We are not content with food and clothing. Let's be honest. Well, yeah, pastor, come on. All I really need is this. Okay, I'll give you that. That in your heart of hearts, you feel that all you really need. But look at your checking account, and then let's have a conversation. Look at the size of your pantry, and then we'll have a conversation. Let's just be honest. We are not simply content with food and clothes. Paul says, if you are not, consider where does that desire come from? Where has it been growing? He says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation in the trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He says the pursuit of financial wealth in and of itself, devoid of the true understanding of what it's supposed to do, will lead us to grief and to ruin. Amen? You know that. We know that. I, we experienced that firsthand. Yes, we could tell ourselves, oh, this is for our family. And we did. We're going to grow, uh, you know, a place of memories here. But in the end, in the end, when that bubble bursts, we lost a ton of money in that house. And we kept losing month after month. And all that money going to that empty house was money that could be used somewhere else to bless other people and do other things. That's just the truth. He says the pursuit of these things, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So those who fix their eyes on money and wrestle with gaining more, and that, that's what drives you, it will just lead you to pain and to grief. Because after all, he says, you brought nothing in this world and you can take nothing out of this world. To make that point so clear, a story came out this week, published uh, in the Huffington Post, about an Austrian woman. Have you heard this? 85 years old, uh, who, according to the German language newspaper Courier, neatly cut 950,000 euros in some savings bonds and accounts on her nursing home bed days before she died. If she couldn't take her with her, none of her kids were going to enjoy it either. And she shredded it all by hand. That's over a million dollars, by the way. She was 85, couldn't spend it all, knew she was going to die. She says, if I can't have it, you can't have it neither. Which begs the question, what was she doing to get all that money? And worse yet, how could she feel so poorly about her relatives that she wouldn't want them to have it? Right? Money in and of itself and the love and the pursuit of it will only lead down to roads of grief. That is what the Bible says here. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So he proposes something very different. Look here. We're, we're closing. So read here. He says, but you, man of God or woman of God, run from this, free from all this, and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Amen, pastor. Those sound like good things. But wait, there's more. Look down a little bit further. He says, <clears throat> verse 17. Command those who are rich, and by the way, as I mentioned first service, that's all of us. In comparison to the majority of the world, we have all ridiculously rich. Yes, if you look at each other, you're like, well, I'm not as rich as that guy. But that's irrelevant. We all have more than we actually need for the most part. I realize I'm not trying to make slight of some of us who are in difficult financial situations, but most of us are not going hungry. At least not without a purpose, if you're dieting or something like that. (laughs) So he says, command those who are rich, that's all of us, in this present world, not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth. Which is so uncertain. But put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. See, God's design for us wasn't that we were poor. Don't misunderstand that. In the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, God says, when you get there and are firmly established, it was God's design. In fact, if you look at some of God's most honest and faithful followers, they were financially blessed richly. It is not God's design that we pretend to be poor or that we act like we're poor. God's design was that he would bless us so that we in turn would bless others. Dr. John Jackson says, money is not an end. It is a tool for ministry. God blessed us with the ability to generate wealth so that we could proclaim his name further. See, that's a concept of the kingdom of priests. We are supposed to take God as our king and represent him far beyond the walls of the church. We're supposed to represent him at our work in our communities, with the people that we do life with beyond these walls. And do you know that the most compelling testimony of a generous God are generous subjects of the kingdom? The most honest and truthful evidence that we belong to a generous God in a generous kingdom is if we ourselves are generous with others. That's why Paul says, don't put your money in wealth. But whatever abilities God has given you, use that to bless other people. Because other people out there who don't know God will believe in God when you are generous with them much more than they will if you preach at them. Much more than if you would just say, well, look at me. I made it. That speaks of arrogance, which is what Paul says don't do. It is not how much you have It is what you will do with it. So be generous, he says. Live generously. Be willing to share. It is hard to share, amen? Like kids know that from the very beginning. They don't come innately. Well, actually, it's kind of weird. I think little, little kids know how to share. Share, and then, and they go like this. 
But by the time they're four or five toddlers, they don't want to share anymore, right? One of the earliest words they learn is mine and no. Mine and no. That comes, that's easy because it's our human nature. It is our human nature to want to desire to be for ourselves our own sufficiency. It's what led us in the Garden of Eden to choose rather than the generosity of God to pursue our own development The snake said to Eve, if you eat of the tree, you will be like God. Your eyes will be open. You can be your own provider. You can be your own God, the determiner of your fate. And ever since then, we have been suckered into following that and away from a God who is generous with us and trying to fill our own storehouses for our own benefit. We might say it's for our children. We might say it's for my family. But even that is a selfish end. You can't protect them. You can never provide for them enough. And if truth be told, when you're gone, they're just going to get rid of your stuff. They're going to auction it. They're going to, I hate to tell you this, they're going to list it in the newspaper and on Craigslist. They're going to say things like, yeah, I don't need this stuff. I don't even know what it is. But my dad was hanging on to it. Does anybody want it? And they will sell it for pennies on the dollar. I hate to burst your bubble. But it's the truth. God says, I did not put you in charge of the earth so that you would grow your own kingdom. I put you there to represent mine. To take this generosity that I have given you and in turn multiply it across the globe. That is our task. That is why God gives us strength and the ability to generate wealth, to give to bless, to provide. And I'm telling you this, friends, because it's necessary that we have a long, hard look at how we are managing the resources that God has given to us. I'm also telling you this, some of you guys, because here's what I found. I found that millennials, you know, the the ones that are barely starting to get jobs, some of you guys are there, you know, 35 and under, they're finally starting to make purchases, and they don't know what to do with their money. A a newspaper article came out this week that said that millennials don't want to make purchases by themselves, so they're asking for advice when they spend over $25,000. That means they're going to buy a home or invest in something, and who do they look to? Their parents, because their parents told them what to do all their life anyway, so now they're like, what do I do, Dad? I don't know how to make decisions for myself, some of them. Newspaper article claims. And so they're coming back to us. So maybe you didn't handle it well, but now you get a chance to influence someone else's decision making. And I want you to hear it clearly. The pursuit of wealth in and of itself will lead to ruin and grief. But the pursuit of godliness, of generous living, of sacrificial giving, will lead to eternal rewards. Things that cannot be destroyed by the stock markets. Things that cannot be destroyed by a mean boss who takes away your job. God tells us, trust me instead of yourself and I will always be there for you. You can lose your job in your house, but you'll always have God. You will always have God. I want to point your attention to one more resource that I think is really important, especially for a certain generation. Uh, A a blogger uh, by the name of Christine Hoover wrote in her blog about a thing called the new greed. This is how she describes it. It exists on our phones, on our iPads, on our computers, in social media, 
She says, we spend countless hours and moments scrolling through, swiping and swiping. She says, what are we looking for? What are we looking for? And why are we leaving our present reality to go somewhere else in our mind? The desire for accolades, invitations, and followers leads us, she says, towards this new greed. New greed. It's like a new social capital that exists in today's culture. And maybe you're on Instagram, maybe you're not. Maybe you're concerned with how many followers or how many likes you got on this post. Maybe you are not. But it's pervasive in our culture, especially amongst the younger generations. Like, like it's, a, it's a new form of wealth. How many people will approve of my posts? How many people will believe that I live a certain life that I really don't? She says, this blogger says, that examining her own life, she finds herself face-to-face in a sit-down conversation with her husband, but uncontrollably scrolling with the phone on the right. You with me? Are you there? In fact, some of you scroll in church. You get bored and you're like, what is, what's happening here? How do I know? I've seen your posts. People forward them to me. No, I'm not spying on you. I'm not a Facebook stalker. Maybe a little bit. So we try to escape our reality by trying to go somewhere else else. And it's like like an endless vortex of nothingness. Because when you get there, when there's, you've ever done that? When you swipe and there's no more stories? You ever been there? We're on Flipboard and like, it won't flip anymore. That's it. You reach the end of the internet and you feel finally full and satisfied. No, right? You turn a thing off, man, this thing, overpromised and underdelivered because it's a new form of wealth. How many things can I experience? How many things can I see? How much is enough? It will never be enough because your true sense of self, the thing that will give you most meaning is the understanding that God is the source of everything good. And my life then should be in honor and in gratitude toward him. A young lady in Instagram, get this, I just read this. This just came out. This week, Tuesday, November 3rd, Esena O'Neill, 18 years old, had 612,000 followers on Instagram. She's what they call a social media star. But late last month, she deleted 2,000 pictures in her account saying they served no real purpose other than self-promotion. As it turns out, she was making a lot of money, close to $2,000 in Australian dollars a day for posts. What? You can make money on those things. I didn't know that. She said, she says that uh, 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 clothing makers would give her stuff, hoping that she would post the picture online because she has many followers and she could monetize it. She says, I was consumed by it. I myself was consumed by it. I obsessively checked the like count for a full week every time I uploaded a picture. She says, so many people strive to be popular online to validate themselves, manipulating photos and captions to give the idea that they are happy just to get followers and to be idolized when none of that truly matters. You're like, "Mm mm-mm, young people, but here's you when you take a selfie. Right? It's hilarious. I see it all the time. Ladies go, oh, let me make my hair fuller. Wait, wait, no, get me from the side. 
It's a new form of wealth. The approval and acceptance of others that can now be actually quantified by how many likes you get and monetized by who will pay you for those things. It's a, it's a whole new world, friends. A whole new world. But the issue is the same. Either God owns it all and I belong to his kingdom and I honor him with everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I post, or I'm trying to carve out my own kingdom and bless and honor myself. What will we do? What will we do? Apostle Paul says, be generous. Dr. Ed Young, also another speaker, says, greed is killed by giving. The way to be free from greed and the root evil of money love is to give it away, to be generous with it. Not just give the excess of the extra, but give, give sacrificially. That is what will free you from the overwhelming desire to be self-sufficient. Because when you give enough and you need to depend on someone, that's when we can finally turn to God and say, you bless me, God. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I belong to him. He is my king, and this is his kingdom.